to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabia, and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about Catherine Bigelow's Point Break, which is a very beloved cult movie from 1991, starring Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. And it's kind of your classic buddy cop film in some ways. It's like a twist on the genre where Keanu Reeves plays the fantastically named Johnny Utah, a young FBI rookie who has to go undercover as a surfer to track down some surfing bank robbers led by Patrick Swayze, who wear masks um, of former US presidents called the ex-presidents. And it's kind of beloved for a variety of reasons. Like it's iconic in that people really enjoy this sort of buddy dynamic between the two main guys, but also a lot of people find it very homoerotic and also like on an artistic level, it's kind of seen as a really obvious illustration of why Catherine Bigelow is such a talented director. And I'd seen this before and enjoyed it a great deal and was very happy to rewatch it and find new and interesting things in the film. Morgan hadn't seen it before, and I think she had a transcendent experience. Yes. The reason we did this, actually, was that it was screening at Film Forum in New York, and I wanted an excuse to go see it. So I engineered this podcast episode and got to experience this inglorious 35mm along with other people who were at the like Tuesday screening at 3 in the afternoon, which was quite a crowd. There were some... Uh, undergraduate girls there who also had a transcendent experience. We came out afterwards, we're in the bathroom, and they were just like, I loved it so much. Oh my God. And I was like, I feel you. I feel you. I also enjoyed this movie. I can't believe I'd never seen it before. Like, I've heard so much about this film over the years and was sort of like, we have to, I think we maybe even had said at some point, like we should eventually do an episode about this. Um, and it seemed like a perfect opportunity. And I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> I, I, I have some problems with the film, which we will get into, but the way I had heard it talked about was kind of as this like, like amazing campy cult movie that was really gay from the early nineties that Catherine Bigelow, whom I love had directed and it's certainly very gay, and the plot is very ridiculous. I mean, the idea of an FBI agent infiltrating a bunch of surfers is just like... Oh my god, I disagree so strongly, because when I watched this, I guess, in my teens, I was like, god, this is dumb. And rewatching it now, now I've kind of read various accounts of really disastrous US law enforcement sting operations, I was like, this is so realistic. Oh, Disastrous idiots going undercover in like a really implausible situation and getting involved and then everyone dying, of course. (laughs) But like, whoever came up with the idea sitting somewhere one day being like, I know what this movie should be. Like, a young quarterback who's now in the FBI Johnny Utah right with some surfers like a million dollars give that man a million dollars Patrick Sweet's character is called Bodhisattva yes which is there's some stunning kind of surfer philosophy in this film and I'm assuming it was at least partially ironic on Catherine Bigelow's part but towards the end I was just like this is such perfect characterization for someone who's clearly just a criminal psycho, but he's like, well, I've really bought into the surfer ideals. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yes. But like, it's a beautiful movie. It's such like, it is shot just in an incredible way. And from the opening sequence, I kind of was like, Oh, this is going to be stunning. And it was, and it, 
impressed me on an aesthetic level way more than I was anticipating it to. And then I kind of, in retrospect, was like, duh, Catherine Bigelow is an amazing director, of course. But just the way that I'd heard it talked about, I wasn't really anticipating that. And then I found it, I think, much more interesting than I thought I was going to. I thought I was going to like it, but I thought it was pretty fascinating. Um, the music also is amazing and I think contributes and very a lot period to that. appropriate. Yes. But like for I'm assuming probably a lot of our listeners will have seen Point Break and you, it's one of these things where most people have seen it like Fight Club or something but not necessarily in the past year or so. So just to like jog your memories, the opening sequence is just amazing. They have the words Point Break coming in from the sides and like clashing together and going across and then there's an intercutting sequence of Johnny Utah and Bodie in their different walks of life and Johnny Utah is shooting stuff while looking incredibly beautiful in the rain with a gigantic wet gun. <laughs> um, and then Bodhi is surfing and being all sort of like blonde Thor surfer. And there's just all this water imagery that continues throughout the film, but it just works so well. And then of course you just launch into this kind of very cliched sort of law enforcement drama walk and talk sequence, I think it was, with Bodhi kind of being introduced to the FBI. And there's just such just silly dialogue. Um, I can't remember his name, but the actor who plays Dr. Cox in Scrubs, who will now be just known as Dr. Cox in Scrubs for our entire generation. Yes. He's the sort of boss character. And young Keanu Reeves, Johnny Utah, is being introduced to the office. And uh, the boss is all being all mean and nasty. And it's like, oh, well, you're just young, dumb, and full of cum. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> well, I have something interesting to tell you about that line of dialogue. So... The thing that interested me most about this film was that it struck me as an amazing example of a movie where the director had taken a bad script and turned it into a mostly good film, purely on the strength of being a good director. And I managed to track down the screenplay. You can find this quite easily on Google um, and read it yesterday. And that line of dialogue is not in the screenplay. <laughs> So I was just like, was that an ad lib? Like, how did that make it in there? I was, I was amazed. Um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, in the screenplay, which we can get into in a little bit. Um, but that opening sequence is totally fascinating to me because it's shot in a really kinetic way. Like both of these characters are sort of like demonstrating their physicality and what they're good at. And there's all this water imagery, which, I mean, the sea is basically a metaphor for sex in this movie. Like this movie is more about sex than like almost anything I've ever seen. Like everything is a metaphor for sex. It's unbelievable. And then it cuts to him like walking through the FBI and these like really rigid sort of like boring shots. And of course he's then like liberated from the FBI later by like discovering how to surf and like falling in love with Patrick Spicy basically. And like, that's the kind of, like, I'm not going to go into, like, that level of detail about all the filmmaking in this movie, but, like, that's the level of intelligence that she's working on of, like, all of the shots in the film. Like, I was watching it thinking about this, and I was just like, oh, my God, like, you are such a good director. This is amazing. And that's the kind of thing, like, I read the screenplay and was like, this is garbage. <laughs> it's so bad. It is so bad. And the background on that is that it was written by this, I guess the idea was by one guy, it was written by another guy, and then Catherine Bigelow and James Cameron, who were married at the time, like, got their hands on it. This was, like, in development forever at some studio. And then, like, they rewrote it, and then she directed it. 
But then she changed, like, everything in the screenplay. Like, the basic, like, list of scenes is mostly the same. But the dialogue, I'd say she kept maybe a third of the dialogue. And then just, like, rewrote the whole thing and, like, cut a bunch of stuff and added some stuff. Although officially the original screenwriter still has the credit. Yeah, they didn't get credit for it. But, like, I did a bunch of Googling trying to, like, confirm that this was true because the only screenplay I could find had their names on it. And it's, it seems like this is, like, definitely what happened. Um... And it was it was just really interesting to me because I remember when I was younger, like I got really into the Oscars as a teenager, as dedicated listeners of this podcast will already know. And one of the things that was con- sort of like difficult for me to sort of distinguish for a long time was like the difference between screenwriting and directing, particularly because a lot of movies that get really far in the Oscars have the same writer and director, but they're actually two totally distinct skill sets. Like obviously a lot of like auteurs do both, but they aren't the same thing. And I remember kind of like having this discussion with my mom, her being like, how, like, how can you tell the difference? And I sort of instinctively sort of knew, but I couldn't quite articulate it. And in this movie, you sort of watch it and think like, okay, what would that look like on the page? And it would just be so dumb. Or like, what would this look like? With different actors as well. Like, especially if you had, if you swapped in like, I don't know, not Bruce Willis because he's too old at that point, but someone like really rugged instead of Keanu Reeves in that lead role, it would be a completely different film. Or like anyone other than Patrick Swayze. Like he makes the movie he has this whole sort of like he just his vibe that he gives off is so important to selling the film because he and Keanu don't actually have that many scenes together no so you have to buy that Keanu is just like obsessed with him based on not that much but he's so magnetic that you're kind of like yeah it's fine (laughs) it's okay um but also like the fact that she's a woman is one of the most interesting things about this movie too, because like if a man had even like that opening sequence, like in the screenplay, it's like this big test at Quantico where he's like chasing down this guy in a car and it like it seems like it's a bank heist and it turns out that it's a test. But it's this like big masculine boring thing. And she turned that into like Keanu Reeves beautiful in the rain, like shooting things with like, you know, water dripping down his chest and whatever. And I was like, thank you. That's excellent. This was an improved like <laughs> oh. so romantic. <laughs> really? Really <laughs> true. Oh my God. And just, like, all these shots of just, like, naked torsos. <laughs> like, water streaming down his face. But also in a really different way to Top Gun, which uh, Morgan hasn't seen. Because Morgan has watched a lot of good films. And I've watched <laughs> a lot of things like Top Gun. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, I've not seen it in, like, ten years or something. But Top Gun is not necessarily good. It's certainly not as good as Point Break. But thematically, it's very similar. But in Top Gun, it's got this really, like aggressive homoerotic subtext which i think was almost certainly unintentional whereas in this it's 100 percent intentional very artistic and sensitive yes very much so and also features one of the like most hilariously obvious like female proxy love interests i've ever seen in a movie of this nature but again 
like because I think because it's a woman directing it, she actually manages to turn her for most of the movie into like a person who yeah, actually because they have one of those human. in Top Gun who's just I mean people just generally forget she's even in the film. Yeah, and then when you see the poster, you're like, there was a woman in this, the the female character in Point Break, even though we've both almost forgotten her name. Tyler. <laughs> I think Tyler. Tyler yeah. She has a very yeah, she has a man's name, and there was actually like an interesting um little blog post review that Morgan found that we're going to put in the show notes, which is kind of all about the homoerotic subtext of Point Break, which I didn't agree with on every level. Um, I thought it went it went into some like extreme detail with a lot of phallic imagery that I think may or may not have been intentional, and I definitely didn't pick up on at all. But um, there's some kind of interpretations of Tyler's character as being overly boyish. Well, and again, in the screenplay, she's described as being like like tall and beautiful with like long blonde hair, and I was like, a man wrote this. <laughs> a man wrote this description, and then like there's one sex scene in the movie, and it doesn't go on very long in the film at all. And like in the screenplay, it goes on for quite some time and is written in a way that you can tell a man wrote it. I was like, thank you, Catherine Bigelow for cutting this and doing something else. Um, And like some of the, I mean, I don't want to like harp on the screenplay too much and it doesn't actually matter in terms of what the finished film is. But again, it was very interesting in terms of just like thinking about the development process of the film and how it was made like she's a very kind of um snarky isn't exactly the right word but sort of sarcastic character and some of that was in the screenplay too but you definitely get the sense that a lot of that came from the process of making the movie and the performance um which i really appreciated and for much of the film until they wind up having sex she uh and keanu or Johnny Utah, I should say, kind of just feel like buddies. Like, you totally know where it's going because it's a movie, and so, like, duh. But they do have this, like, camaraderie that's really enjoyable to watch. It doesn't actually feel that sexual. And so then when they do have sex, it actually it doesn't completely feel like they should be having sex. It was, I was sort of like, I don't know if I buy this. Or they do, but it doesn't like, seem romantic. Yeah. Because they don't have a romance subplot. Their relationship is that he's kind of using her as an end to the surfer community because he needs to find out which of the surfers are criminals. And also she teaches him to surf. But the way that happens is he uses the FBI database to find out about her past. So he finds out that her parents are dead and then he makes up a dead parent story of his own to like manipulate her, which I thought was such an interesting detail because it's horrible. And also Keanu Reeves' character on no level comes across as a horrible person. The general writing of the character and also obviously Keanu's performance, he seems really sweet and innocent and dumb. But then this particular thing, and I was like, I don't know how much of that was intentional, but I was like, this is definitely something that you get trained to do if you're undercover and you need to manipulate people's weaknesses and stuff. And I was like, to what extent is this a critique (laughs) of the FBI or are we just supposed to like not realize that he's being a tremendous, huge creep monster? (laughs) I think that you read way more into the critique of law enforcement than there is in the film. (laughs) I think... I mean, I agree with you, but I don't think there's really a lot that it has to say. Because that's the subtext that. I was really into rewatching it. I was like, man, undercover cops are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, he's not actually presented as the worst at all. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, the reason why the film works is because he is lovely. Yes. And not terribly bright. 
and really, no. really lonely. Yeah. He doesn't have any friends or interests or apparently at home. I mean, he has a backstory, but it's also, like, not real. I don't mean in the sense that he's lying. I mean in the sense that, like, it doesn't feel real. Yeah, Keanu like, Reeves, watching, college like... quarterback, which is already, like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Although my favorite detail, perhaps, in the entire film was his uh, alarm clock in the shape of a football helmet. <laughs> did oh you notice God. that? I did not notice that. Actually, in the screenplay, they thought that through and that it made it through to this to the film. I was like, that's beautiful. That actually does feel in character. He's a loser, and he has an alarm clock in the shape of a football helmet. <laughs> That's so cute. You see, if they'd made the remake with Tyler Hecklin in that role as a former baseball player, I would have been a lot less unkind towards it. Yes, I agree. I'm with you. Um... <laughs> yeah, that was like the one little character detail that I sort of like, I bought into. But yeah, Keanu is fantastically blank in this role, as he always is. Do you want to share your thoughts about your favorite man, Keanu Reeves, in this movie? <laughs> well, I, at some point, I'm going to make Morgan watch a lot of Keanu Reeves films because I'm a great fan of him. And although I, I do generally buy into the widespread belief that he's quite a limited actor, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And I also think that there is a lot of really classic, famous, beloved movie stars of the kind of A-list Hollywood icon variety who are also relatively limited. And it's sort of like, there are quite a lot of films where he's miscast. Um, and there's actually an article I'm going to link to um, on the Roger Ebert website by a writer called Angelica Bastian, which is really good. And it's sort of, it's sort of a defense of his career. And it's kind of looking at the various roles he's been really good in and the way that his performances really work because he is kind of blank and still, but he also has this charisma and the, the roles where he's just really shit are things like Bram Stoker's Dracula, where they're like, first of all, he cannot convincingly play a Victorian Englishman. That is not a role to hire 90s era post Bill and Ted's excellent adventure Keanu for. That's not in his range. But also it's like a passionate gothic role. And you want stuff where he's got this sort of quietness and also when he's younger, this innocence and sensitivity that's sort of there without necessarily being in the script. And that's the performance he brings. And now he's sort of graduated to roles like John Wick, which is a very classic action role, but it's just an incredible film that is made extra good by his performance. <laughs> I actually, like, I do not have the same passion in my heart that you do for Canaries, but I actually like him fine. Um, I was describing to someone yesterday the, his performance in this film, and I think I said, like, it was sort of very blank, but also full of feeling, which is my general general feeling about many of Keanu Reeves' performances, yeah. which I don't think is bad. I think that that's just fine. I actually love him in um, My Own Private Idaho, which is totally different from this, but came out the same year. I mean, yeah, the he was having a really good period in the kind of 1989 19 to 1992 yeah. time. <laughs> um, and what's interesting about that is that he is also has the sort of blankness, but he's playing a very, I don't want to say bad person, but kind of a bad person. Like he doesn't have any of this sort of like, like naivete, like pleasant, like innocent guy. Like River Phoenix is the, the one who's being used by him in that film. And he is very convincing. Um, so he does have some range. It's just also within a specific, like, specific type of performance, which is fine. 
But I think in this movie it works very well that he is this blank slate in a certain way because Patrick Swayze just is this, like, I mean, so much just, like, charisma and sexual energy going on there. Like, I couldn't believe. Like, a really I, convincing sort of cult leadery kind of way. Yes. Because he's in this little community of surfers who basically are all portrayed as being really stupid and immature and the only interest they have is surfing. And then, and also they're all kind of buying into this combination of really energetic, sporty, like late 80s, early 90s pop culture and also being stoner, fake Buddhist burnouts who are really into like nonsensical philosophy and that doesn't really make sense, but has that certain fake surfer Buddhism thing going on, which is like why he's called Bodhi. And you see him just like manipulating them and it's like clearly he buys into his own bullshit, but it is also bullshit. Yes. Um, very much so. Whereas Keanu has this very authentic interpretation of it in the film. Because yeah. he's just like a simple idiot and has never been exposed to like culture, friendship, <laughs> love or fun <laughs> ever before. Because yeah. he's just this really dull, no friends character. Like that that's why he really benefits from having a really shit backstory. Because he's sort of the proto version of these nineties kind of drama characters where it's just this crisis of masculinity, lonely guy who's been let down by, you know, the upbringing of Generation X men, which is how you end up with American Psycho and Fight Club in like 10 years. Yes. But this is the nice, positive, nurturing side where he learns that through the love of Patrick Swayze and surfing, you can grow as a human. Although it doesn't wind up oh, yeah. well for him. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't end well. <laughs> so, this, this is, again, something where, like, if a man had directed this movie, I don't know how this would have worked at all, right? Because it's not even that there are so many... I mean, there are definitely shots where it's clearly just, like, the camera, camera is ogling Patrick Swayze. But it's not that there's... It's not exactly in a way that directly mirrors men directing movies. I was thinking that yeah. all the way through, because when you watch it, it's really clearly, like, look at all these beautiful men, but it's not it's not like in a magic mic way and it's also not in a kind of male gaze at women kind of way. Yeah, but there's a sequence, like, I think the best sequence in the movie is um, they all go skydiving at a very kind of critical plot point, maybe two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through. Um, and apparently, so like Pat, I was reading Patrick Swayze like used to do most of the stunts in his own movies and so like insisted on learning how to surf for this and like broke four of his ribs because like he didn't know how to surf but wound up doing a lot of the, his own surfing um which i think you can actually tell because i remember watching it and i was like i think i can actually see his face doing this which like keanu reeves like clearly was a stunt double but that he like immediately took to skydiving and like did a butt like just like 45 or something like jumps out of a plane i think he may already have been a skydiver before they filmed it yeah but there this way they shoot this sequence is just like so unbelievably or she i should say is so unbelievably beautiful like it's just stunning and again something that even without having read the screenplay i kind of was looking watching it and being like i guarantee in the screenplay they're just like and then they jumped out of a plane and like obviously some of it is described but it's staggering and like the sight of Patrick Swayze like doing sort of tricks in the air and 
while skydiving, like, not even in a sexual way, but just, like, it was just, like, the most, like, beautiful thing I've, like, ever seen. I was just, like, this is amazing, and, like, the way that it shot and everything, and just that kind of understanding of the transcendent appeal of him and that body is something I think she clearly really understands and it's so inimical to how the movie functions. This desire going back and forth between them that obviously is totally unspoken that I just can't fathom a male director or certainly a straight male director, I should say, like grasping at all. And it adds so much to the movie because as you were saying about Top Gun, like so many of these action movies that's in it, um, but they don't actually know. It's the, it's the results of just completely ramping up to like a preposterous degree, a combination of like male bonding, really poorly written female characters and lots of like shirtless violence. <laughs> it's sort of like you know there's i can't remember it's like i think it's predator there's like a scene where like the two main characters sort of like you know angrily clasp hands and they just like zoom in on their biceps and i'm like what are you doing <laughs> the same um blog post that the link to that you were referencing earlier that like really like like shot by shot like is analyzing the homoeroticism um points out like a lot of those kinds of movies a little a lot of that sort of symbolism and imagery just comes from like guns everywhere right and that one of the things that's neat about this movie is that a lot of that symbolism comes from other things right so as i was saying at the beginning that like the ocean is such a like code word basically for sex (laughs) so like Johnny Utah is sort of like fascinated by the sea and obviously he's going to try to catch these guys, but like he can't really surf and Tyler has to sort of like teach him how to surf, but he still can't really do it. And he's trying to figure it out. And meanwhile, Bodie is like this God of surfing. Like he does it so well. And eventually they're at this party at his house and they're all going to go out and like ride the wave at night. And Johnny's like, I can't do it. Like I'm going to die. I can't even do it in the day. And Bodhi's like, yeah, but like, you just have to like feel it, like accept it or whatever. And then they want, he want, they wind up like going out together and like basically going up on the wave together and then like doing it at the same time. And there's this shot of them coming down together. And I was just like, they're having sex. Like, this is so transparently like the symbol like, is hilarious. And then after that's over, he then immediately actually has sex with the only female character in the entire movie. And I was like, you could not be more like, oh my God. But there's like that. And then even the skydiving, which like, isn't at all like a sexual scene, but the idea of the sort of like physical pleasure deriving from something other than like violence. Right. And like, that's in the movie too, for sure. Like you have the um, like bank robbery, robbery scenes. And then even that opening sequence, like, uh, Keanu is doing shooting stuff with the gun, but there's more going on, right? And there's all this different stuff, which I think makes that dynamic a lot more interesting than just being like, I have a gun, it's very phallic. <laughs> and like, it's and weird I'm because we watching it, I'd forgotten the type of action they use. So obviously, there's a lot of surfing in this movie, like a lot. And it's also kind of quite abstract a lot of the time. And then the action sequences 
are really non-traditional. The main traditional action sequence is a foot chase where there's like a short gun sequence and then Keanu is chasing after Swayze in his uh, ex-president mask for like five or ten minutes and being shot, it's being shot in like a handheld camera. And it's really it's a really great chase sequence, but it's not like the kind of thing you see in a big action movie, especially not one that's quite iconic. And then the other ones are all just stuff like skydiving, which is not about, oh, it's really gripping while the parachute open, because it's all just emotional stuff. You know, the sequence in the skydive is the group of people all hold hands and symbolize their like friendship as evil criminals. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that foot chase is amazingly directed, too. Like, that was one of the other moments in the movie. Like, I was appreciating her direction the whole time, but watching that, I was just like, this is amazing. Like, it's two people just, like, running for a few minutes would not normally be that interesting and it's shot in a totally fascinating way and then you know spoiler he lets him get away at the end because he can't bring himself to shoot him it was like of course uh, i was <laughs> like, so excited at that part because that's the bit that's like the most overt reference in hot fuzz which I know that you haven't seen, but also any listeners, if you've not seen Hot Fuzz, it's fantastic. It's an Edgar Wright comedy starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. And it's it's a parody, but it's a very well-informed and like smart parody of these buddy cop films. And it's about two policemen in like a small village in England. And Nick Frost just plays this local cop who's just really lazy and is completely in keeping with the lazy village mood of just no crime happening like the worst thing that happens is like a goose goes missing and everyone just spends the whole day in the pub and then simon pegg is this really overhyped energetic city cop who's like okay it's time to bust some heads and they're like the unlikely cop partnership but the thing that makes it amazing is that nick frost's character is completely obsessed with all these buddy cop movies so as soon as this cool policeman shows up and his, his partner he's immediately like have you ever been in a gun battle like have you ever like loved someone so much that you can't shoot them and instead you like shoot into the air <laughs> and it's just like all this stuff and the whole film is filled with these references but it's not it's not in that sort of cheap big bang theory way where it's just a reference for the sake of a reference like every single scene of that film has got something where there's really like funny subtext and visual humor and references to these uh like 80s 90s buddy cop films edgar wright films do not have women in them like none of those movies really have women and but that's definitely a group of male filmmakers who really understand like the subtext of point break <laughs> yeah. yeah i need to see that film it's on my long list of, of general pop culture things that weren't artsy enough for me to see at the time because I was a snob. I think so for this episode, I was going to recommend Hot Fuzz and Fast and Furious. And Hot Fuzz, I think, is the one that you'd actually get something out of because there's like <laughs> a lot. There's a lot to look into in Hot Fuzz. Like, it's so complex. The whole of the second half of the film is full of stuff that folds back into the first half so you can watch it twice in a row and it's better the second time. Yeah. But Fast and Furious is like basically a remake of this film. So if you liked Fast and Furious, what you were doing is you were watching a fanfic of Point Break that takes every single emotional point and does it in like a much more intense way. So the whole thing is like, man, isn't it great to like find a good friend at last now you're undercover, but then what if you have to betray them? And the franchise like figured out that actually wouldn't it be better if you don't have to betray them? And then they made like <laughs> seven films about the characters just being criminals together and to like avoid any kind of moral qualms, eventually they're absorbed into the US justice system as like official car thief criminals. <laughs> they're like the Ocean's Eleven of arbitrary car crime. <laughs> and it's just the best. 
but yeah it's all about sort of friendship and never having an unhappy ending but also probably slightly less artistic quality than Catherine Bigelow (laughs) (laughs) which is fine it's fine yeah I have never seen a Fast and Furious movie I've seen all of them and I intend to see every single other one that's ever made (laughs) I know They're shooting one now because I just saw some footage of a bunch of cars falling out of a building onto a street on Twitter. If if you can get someone to pay you to do that, more power to you. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So should we talk about the ending of this movie before maybe moving along to some other other topics to do with Catherine Bigelow, etc.? Go ahead. Because the ending is is really quite stunning. and also is where I wound up having some problems with the movie um, and where I think she can't really transcend the bad script anymore. So what winds up happening is obviously Bodie, Patrick Swayze and his people are the people robbing the banks. But uh, Johnny thinks it's this other gang of guys. It's totally obvious to the audience that this is now the case from like minute one, but that's fine. Um, but he figures it out. And then he and his partner who's played by Gary Busey, which was very funny in the film, go and try to like stop them at their, their last raid of the summer. Cause they only do this during the summer, which is surf season. <laughs> and they don't succeed but they, he manages to, like, out himself, basically, which is when this chase sequence happens. So then they all know that he's an FBI agent. Then they go skydiving, and Patrick Swayze reveals to him that he's taken Tyler, his girlfriend, hostage. And is like, she looks kind of beat up, and he's like, if I don't get to her by this time, this other guy's going to kill her. So you need to help us rob this bank. And this is when he gives, like, one of his most amazing sort of, like, bullshit philosophy, like, speeches. Yeah, that was my favorite Bodie moment in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Keanu, of course, like, is very upset. He loses it. He shouts. And then he has to go help them. From a narrative perspective, there's no reason to kidnap the girlfriend, which is why it's... It's totally just, like, it's nonsense. The whole thing is complete nonsense. What frustrated me so much about it was that like of course they have to have this woman there as like the proxy as we were discussing because that's like how these movies work but the fact that the last act turns so much on like the woman is being captured and she might get murdered and she's inexplicably in like a white night dress when the rest of the film she's wearing these really like sporty like tomboyish clothes because she's a surfer and it's like oh suddenly she's in this like innocent virginal like white nightgown ready to be kidnapped right made me crazy and also like so she and Bodhi like used to be an item back in the day and he obviously like robs banks with guns so this is not a man who's like particularly like moral right but they also haven't really demonstrated up to that point in the film that this is a guy who's willing to like have his ex-girlfriend kidnapped by a like violent psychopath and like maybe she'll get murdered if I don't get there in time like that's fine as a character thing, if you're going to set that up. But so far he's just been this kind of like dude who robs banks and also surfs, which is like not the same thing as having your ex-girlfriend kidnapped and potentially. Yeah. Because you can easily interpret like his followers as just being sort of like, well, man, we hate capitalism. So we're just going to rob some banks so we can surf. And then also like his gang is apparently on board with the idea of having this wooden woman kidnapped. Who's like their friend. Yeah. Like she hangs out with them all the time. Although she apparently doesn't know they're on banks. 
So it's just a plot device that doesn't actually add up with like anything else in the film. And Keanu cares about her. That's fine. But it's so just like jammed in there. And then he has to participate in this bank robbery. It's terrible. And he gets it's fired. like some people like, literally can't write a film without someone's girlfriend getting kidnapped. Right. Totally threw me out of it because I was just like, oh. And it was the sort of thing where I had sort of been able to tell the script was bad the whole time, but the direction was so good that it didn't matter for most of it. And that was the point where I was like, oh, yeah, this is not a good screenplay. <laughs> like, this is a problem. But then what winds up happening is that he does wind up sort of like off with with Bodie in this plane going to wherever she is and like jumps out of the plane without a like parachute to follow him. And it's very, very sexy. <laughs> I loved the moment where he jumped out of the plane without the parachute. Clutching each other in the air and then fall to the ground and are like rolling around in the parachute. It's really something. But she winds up sort of like, they let her go and they like embrace. And then Bodhi drives off into the sunset. And you think that's going to be the end of the movie, but it's not. There's a second ending, which like this goes on for too long. But by this point I was kind of like, this part of the movie isn't good. And so I was only sort of interested in like what's going on here. So you think the movie's over and Keanu Reeves has this like happy heterosexual ending, but, but no, He's like, spends a year chasing Bodhi around the world obsessively to Australia, where he's like obsessed with this like 50 year storm. It's to be the biggest wave ever. And they like have this massive fight on the beach and Keanu manages to handcuff them together because he's going to bring him in. But Bodhi manages to convince him to let him go to like kill himself in the wave, basically, which is just like, it was just stunning. I loved it. I loved it. I was like, oh my god, like, this is so much. And, like, Keanu, like, walks off and, like, tosses his FBI badge into the ocean. Brilliant. <laughs> loved it. But so, I, the screenplay, what happens at the end is that, like, Johnny and Tyler both go to Australia. And he, like, sees Bodie. <gasps> and they don't fight. And Bodie's just like, let me go, man. He's like, alright. <laughs> okay, just, so that's the end of Fast and Furious. But, like, with more friendship. <laughs> and, like, he kills himself, and then, like, the description is that you can, like, see the board breaking and, like... Uh... I love the idea of, I guess, like, what you're describing as, like, the man version of that film, where, like, but when the board yeah. breaks, there's, like, a little Michael Bay explosion. <sighs> but the thing like... is, like, emotionally, I loved the ending, like, because it was really overwrought, but there was just, like, a good 20 minutes at the end where I agree with you that it was just floundering. The story yeah. didn't really work, and I completely agree. I mean, the very last scene, I was like, yeah. Love it. Like, Love it. it. Also, made... Keanu ages like 20 years. <laughs> yeah, they did a very right? good job. Because Keanu is like so youthful and gorgeous throughout the film. And then he's like modern Keanu <laughs> in like yeah. the final shot because he's got the facial hair and looks really grizzled. And I'm like, wow, how did they do it? Because obviously Keanu Reeves did not age until about 2005. Right. At all. It took a long time. <laughs> um, but it was... It was, like, fascinating because I was like, okay, so clearly she just added all of the, like, homoeroticism at the end because she knew that this was not going to work. But also, that floundering is exactly how the movie feels for, like, 20 minutes. And 
is completely the result of the plot turning on weird machinations of narrative that don't have anything to do with emotional stakes, right? The relationships in the movie are pretty well defined and like work and like function in a pretty logical way. And then the climax of the movie doesn't revolve around them in the, like it does not like that's going too far, but it doesn't revolve around them in a completely logical way because in order for that to happen, it would have to be way gayer than they could make it. So not that they would have to be actually gay, but like they kind of clearly were like, Oh, I can't do that. Although they're literally Patrick Swayze literally says to him in the airplane, you want me so bad. It's like acid in your mouth, which is like, what? I mean, that isn't the screenplay. I was, I mean, they, okay, sure. (laughs) Just, I'm sad that wasn't a lyric in the song over the end credits. Yeah. Would have been would have been really something. Um but it's just I mean, as a like cultural artifact, just so fascinating that this exists. Like because these movies still get made, right? Like all the time. Yeah, but they're almost all bad. Yeah, and almost And it was the same then, because I've seen quite a lot of eighties action movies. Yeah. (laughs) And even now, it's like it's not on purpose almost ever. Yeah, because what we've basically graduated to now is either you have the kind of buddy cop things, which are written by guys in their 30s and 40s who grew up on stuff like Top Gun and Point Break, and they're like, we love buddy cop stuff, we're going to like make more of these. Or it's the things like Guy Ritchie films, where he's purposefully put in what he views as homoerotic subtext but in a sort of slightly cynical way. Where it's yeah. just like, if you want to tell this story and you understand what the story is, then you should just be making a film about gay people and not being a dick. <laughs> right. Whereas this, the emotion is very pure. Yeah. And nuclear cinema was going on at this time. It's not like there weren't any movies being made about gay people. But, like, I mean, it's hard enough to get a Hollywood studio movie now made with any queer people in it. Yeah, like, we literally, yeah, we're still waiting for, like, the gay action film to happen. Right. Like, like we're still basically waiting for women action films to happen. Right, like, there's no fucking way. And this was about as close as it was going to get. Um, and I think it's, like, way better than all this other, like, like the guy Richie garbage that we get now, which I just, I just find it totally fascinating, especially in the context of, like, again, this female director who makes movies mostly but not exclusively about men. Um, like, Zero Dark Thirty has a female protagonist. And I think... I haven't seen most of her other movies. I've seen a couple of the other ones. But it's my understanding that that's the one that's sort of, like, the most about a woman. I think there might be one other that kind of has a female protagonist but also has, like, other sort of central male characters. And Zero Dark Thirty is, like, Jessica Chastain is, like, on screen the entire time but a lot of her artistic project if you will is clearly about interrogating masculinity interesting like why why which is why we're almost certainly going to be doing a second Catherine Bigelow episode at some point yeah in a few months we are going to be talking about probably her war films basically her other stuff is all just like weird genre stuff that she jumped around between until she got to the war stuff with Mark Wall which is now I mean, she's doing a movie next to the Detroit riots, which isn't a war thing, but it's also very much like sort of social commentary type piece that he also wrote. So they're 
they're sort of a team now, which I think is is good since the other film I saw of hers yesterday was Strange Days, which James Cameron wrote, which was not good. Starring Voldemort in the lead role. Yes. He was very beautiful in this movie. It was really peak beauty for him and for Angela Bassett, who was the best part of the film. That was the really the only redeeming thing about it. But that was her first movie after this, and I just remember... I, I It really... We all have our ups and downs as creative individuals. <laughs> you don't always hit the money every time. But uh, yeah, I think we, we don't have time to go into that. I kind of wanted to, wanted to just explain the whole plot to you, because it is so crazy... James Cameron has some issues, I think. That's what that movie taught me. I knew that anyway, as we've previously discussed, but like, oh my god. I Um, think at later date, if we ever do a cyberpunk episode, which if I have anything to do with, we will. (laughs) We can talk about Strange Days, which Morgan can tell me about, because I've seen about every single late 80s, early 90s cyberpunk film, apart from Johnny Mnemonic starring Keanu Reeves, which I've been like saving for myself. (laughs) (laughs) But um, (laughs) this is one of the worst, so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, her staying power is amazing, though, because this was a hit. Point Break was a hit, which I don't think anyone was really expecting. But then Strange Days didn't make any money. And then she kept making movies, which for a woman is, like, amazing. And then she didn't really have a hit until, again, until Zero Dark Thirty. And, like, obviously the Hurt Locker won the Oscar, so that was fine. But nobody watched it. Right. And she's made, like eight or nine films or something and not like she was making them every other year like it took a while for each of them to happen and of course she was had the james cameron connection for a while but it's pretty it's pretty incredible so she clearly is she's chugging along i have a lot of respect for that but uh yeah i think we would both highly recommend this film to anyone listening to this if we haven't already sold you i don't know what to say patrick swayze has an unbelievable mullet (laughs) Often wet, sometimes dry. Uh, yeah, just please watch this. It's it's joyous. Um, and we'll return to Catherine Bigelow at some point in the future, because I love her. She's great. Next week, we're going to try an interesting experiment. Would you like to explain that experiment, Gav? <laughs> okay, so this experiment came about because, as you've probably heard by now, if you've even been listening just this episode, Morgan and I, we have like a lot of shared interests, but we also kind of diverge quite a lot in the sense that Morgan, her background is far more in like highbrow films, whereas I'm the kind of person who would happily watch the entire list of all Fast and Furious films again right now, back to back. All <laughs> like seven of them. Uh, <laughs> so... We've decided since next week is kind of a slow week on the new movie release schedule that we are both going to force the other to watch something that we would never otherwise agree to watch. (laughs) So we are going to iron this out over the next few days. Stay tuned on social media and we will announce what we are going to be making the other watch. This may be one film or it might be enough tv episodes to last like two to three hours the the same length as like a reasonable film that you can watch in a week and uh, then we're going to discuss them so i haven't thought of mine yet i don't think morgan's thought of hers yet so we're gonna get thinking and then we are gonna sadistically force each other to watch (laughs) stuff that we will probably hate but might love and then we'll discuss it next monday get ready for that it's gonna be very exciting (laughs) Uh, so thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, 
please leave us a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. Otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, at Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. See you next week. Bye.